I, I could sit here and say that, you know, you're guaranteed your money back, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, that's not, it's not yeah. honest. Um, you know, it's a, it's a risky business. You know, you can be incredibly successful um, and you can not be incredibly successful. You can, you can lose money. In the room, 52 Jokers Wild. Welcome, everybody. It's another Friday in the room with Garvin and George. And this week, our guest is James Weber, who is a writer-director at the uh, Springhead Film Company. He's also a writer-director in his own right, doing commercial films and things, uh, commercials, music videos, and the likes of. And he's also produced his first feature film, and I've got to get this right now, Sorority. If you'd like to tell us about your uh, sorority and why people get it wrong so often. Um, it's, it's, it is a strange thing. I mean, a lot of people have thought it's called uh, sobriety, which, um, I don't know, <laughs> um, it's not called that at all. Um, maybe that says more about them, I, I don't know. But um, the, the usual thing is uh, that people, when they find out it's called sorority, assume it's a horror film for some reason, which, I mean, it couldn't be further from being a horror film um, than, than possible. Um, but it's an interesting thing, and it's something that, that sort of a lot of the people who worked on the film, we've sort of discussed. Um, and we, I guess we kind of wanted to reclaim the word, you know? Because if you think about it, like, a, a, you know, a sisterhood, women together, um, automatically conjuring you know that someone would think it's a horror film it's kind of it's kind of bizarre so so we sort of wanted to reclaim it and um sort of spin it i guess in a more more positive now i haven't light. seen the film james i haven't seen the film but it sounds like a bunch of women are getting together and there's no men and they're they're planning and they're doing stuff and they're they're keeping us on the outside therefore you're telling me it's not a horror a bunch of women in a room <laughs> Keeping the men away, planning stuff. They're the friends. We're the enemies. You go, I don't, maybe it is a horror. And actually, they might be sober, but our sobriety has gone out the window with the worry. Um, no, it's not like that at all. <laughs> um, no, it's, um, I mean, it is predominantly kind of a, a, a female uh led certainly from from the acting there's there's only really one male character in the whole film um but you know i it was something um when i when i started making the film i never really thought because you know i'm a, you know i wrote the script as well as directed it i didn't want to um it to be like a gimmick i didn't set out for it to be like that i just wrote about characters and they just happened to be I female I'm going to ask, well, actually, that's an interesting thing, because if, when you look at the, the various film boards and screen skills in both the UK and Ireland, and actually further afield and abroad, there's yeah, this whole right subject matter of, of gen addressing gender imbalance. And actually, they're looking to promote sort of screenwriter, producer, director, female, and more female-led cast and more female-led crew. Now, here's three men sitting in virtual rooms talking about an all-women film, effectively. Yet we're you're you're not the female producer or director. Oh, you're actually you weren't. It wasn't even a female writer. Was it that this was actually a call out from the industry to write something under this heading, and you stepped up, or you actually just found yourself writing on this subject matter, and it just happens to meet the industry ask? Um, I I would never write something for uh, a, a quota or um, yeah. I mean. <laughs> A lot, a lot of my films have been, uh, you know, with female leads and that's not, you know, a gimmick. It's not something I thought, oh, I can get more funding if I do it this way. Um, it's it's just the way it is. And I was sort of doing it before, I, I guess, it became, I don't know, fashionable. It's story-led, story yeah. which is great. Yeah, yeah, precisely. I mean, Sorority for me is like a really personal film. A lot of it uh, sort of... I grew up in a household of women. When I was younger, I lived in a house with, uh, for many years with my mum, my grandmother and my great grandmother. And, um, and, and my father wasn't in the picture. And I, I sort of grew up in this really interesting 
uh, household with many generations of women from the same family. And I remember the way they they talked to each other and the way that they all saw life differently. And I think it had a very kind of profound effect on my work. You know, they were funny. They didn't take any nonsense. Uh, you know, they could be frustrating sometimes. They could be warm, very funny. Um, and such characters and there's there's that in sorority um that's all, all those most of the story is fictional to a degree there's still quite a big influence of sort of my childhood and sort of growing up in that house and watching things unfold what, what i'm hearing now is like again coming from business what we're saying we want more we want to break the glass ceiling. We had a couple of guests on which were under that heading and more powerful women in business or even respect or equalization of pay or getting bigger promotions. But at the end of the day, in my eyes, and you sort of touched on it in the one sentence there, there's three generations of the decision makers. There's three generations of the real workers that are not being paid or maybe being paid, maybe not going out to business. But probably if, if there's no men around, they, that, that actually says the same thing again. It says they were not only doing the homework, they were doing the work work because there's no man to be seen. They're the decision makers. They're, the, they're actually the puppet masters. They're the ones that empowered you and the likes of me. You know, I'm a, I think I'm a strong man, but I know my mother made me who I am. Uh, okay, my father was there, but she was the boss. You know, she was, she made the decisions and she empowered us to have a good lifestyle or go out there and educate ourselves. So, you know, I, t I always, I do believe we may be three men in a room, but we know who the bosses are. We know well, who the yeah. real decision makers are. And ultimately, there's more respect needs to be given in film and, and have I, that reflected, I, I think. Yeah. So you just inspired a little story from my own sort of childhood where I remember being in the back of the car as a kid and my dad was sort of saying, okay, you want to go for a drive? Let's go for a drive. And we come to a T-junction. It was a case of he'd say to his wife, my mum, which way would you like to go? Well, you make the decision. That's that's your choice. You so you kind of go, all right, I'll go left. <sighs> and he'd suddenly realised he'd made a mistake and had to turn the car around and go the other way because she was the one. She wasn't making decisions. It looked like it looked as though she was giving him his place, but she made the final decision of what they were going to do and how they were going to do it, which I think is 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 interesting. You know, uh, and I think that's that's what happens in most households. Actually, even the the household at home that I I had uh, my wife was there. I had my two sons, but it took me and my two sons to be able to sort of match up to my wife. And I don't even think we did then. And then now we've actually got my mum living with us as well. So it's all kind of I've kind of been back into that experience. So I think mm. it's, it's it is fascinating just sort of seeing the psychology of that. And is that the kind of thing that kind of expires your kind of filmmaking that you're looking at? the psychology of family structures and things like that? Or uh, have you other themes that you're interested in that you're hoping to explore in your next project? Um, I, I've got quite a, a wide cinematic taste. Um, a, lo a lot of my, you know, short films and my, my first feature are, are dramas and sort of deal with, I guess, everyday issues. But I, you know, I watch all kinds of films. I don't just watch those kinds of films. I'll, I'll watch, you know, I'm a big horror fan. Um, I, I, you know, I'll watch uh, something that's painfully bad and painfully cheesy and completely enjoy it. And then I'll go and watch a black and white Russian film from the 1950s. Like if you, if you around my house and you look at my Blu-ray collection, it's, eclectic um and i think it sort of goes back to something um that always stuck with me which uh, electra said uh, back when i was studying film um and that was to watch everything yeah. soak everything up i think he used a mexican game show as an example maybe i didn't go that far but um just watch as much stuff as possible and and actually after um after studying, I got a job in, and, 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 and I know how this sounds, it makes me the ultimate kind of walking cliche as, as a filmmaker, but I, I went and worked in Blockbuster for a number of years and <laughs> right. watched 
more films than you could possibly imagine. Um, oh, I can imagine a lot, and I've watched more. <laughs> I actually worked in a place in London called Video Serve that actually delivered in the videos the blockbuster. Or, yeah. or, uh, you know, so the strange thing is, and our pay, our extra bonus, my friends, my student friends was, you got to bring some videos home for free at night. So we'd put in a 10-hour day in the day, and we'd do six to eight hours of back-to-back video at night for about three months. So I think we actually looked like The Walking Dead by the end of it. But we were, and it was actually in the Betamax era. So it was, we had, we had a Betamax <laughs> video recorder, and, and they were, they were moving from Betamax to VH just the time so we unfortunately we could only afford to beat a max video but and our choice was then limited on which ones were now being made versus the back catalog catalog versus the new catalog but it was probably my first introduction to all the various names of the various uh, production houses releasing the movies because that's you've got to do your typing in your data mm. input very fast because you'll recognize the little eagle or the or the something else and you're already halfway through the code and you knew that was going to be a horror this is going to be a comedy they they do this type of work they do that type of work so and i think that's probably still reflected <laughs> to this day they have their you know they most production houses might actually err would you think on if we're a horror production house we know our market. We know what we do all good all day long. This is what we do. Now, what was interesting about what you were saying was your background could have been from drama to you like cheat from horror to cheat. So a cheesy horror would actually be something very, very attractive to the end audience. And maybe the drama might have a harder audience. But the great thing you said was you've made the film. You've raised the finance. You made your passion someone else's or enough of it to actually attract the money to get it made. How difficult was that? Was it a big or small budget? You know, I mean, what that journey is is very, very important to an awful lot of individuals out there to get to that first feature. But just before we go there, because one of the things I just wanted to sort of bring up, uh, because I know that you're dealing with people in the um, the Spring Springhead Film Company, because th- we do want to go into what Garvin's just talking about, but because we're at this little place here, um, I know from teaching a lot of students that one of the biggest problems was they weren't watching uh, anything over the five years old and they wouldn't even watch a black and white movie. And if you then introduce them to the black and white, like 12 Angry Men, uh, the whole the, the initial reaction to the students was that they would basically sigh and get really frustrated. And then straight away afterwards, as they watched it, they went, oh, my God, that was an amazing movie. And because they haven't had a chance to experience that, they're losing a lot of filmmaking techniques, especially the ones that Garvin and I want to start using in the more in the films that we're doing now. Because they they they're just they're just so used to Hollywood blockbuster special effects CGI that they think they have to uh, replicate those, and they're missing out on such a massive part of the education of how to make you know stories that can be uh, appealing to a, to a general audience do you find that with the the people that you're working with in in spring springhead um well springhead's my company so um it's uh you know <laughs> it's it was kind of set up to um i guess make the the, the kind of films that i wanted to make and the the stories i wanted to to explore. I mean, I, I do work outside of the company as well. I'm not completely um, tied to it, but um, yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, and we've done all kinds of stuff, um, you know, in our short films before we sort of went into our feature, you know, there was a lot of urban dramas. There was, um, you know, a very silly uh, horror short we did that did really well. Um, and it was, it was all kinds of things, but um I think the the mission statement, because it, it was myself and my wife that set up the company, um, was to, you know, assemble a bunch of like-minded filmmakers across the board, you know, DOPs, sound design, you name it, um, almost like create a film family um, where we all you know enjoy each other's work as much as each other's company because i think that does kind of reflect uh in in the films as well if you, if you're enjoying yourself making it um that's uh that you know that can translate quite well onto the screen as well if you have a terrible time doing something then it's you know that can be part of the dna of the film as well um and i've been quite lucky to 
you know, the, all the films we've made have been just really uh, great, great experiences. Um, yeah, so that it was really just set uh, set up as as uh, as a way to sort of progress and sort of make the films that that interested. Um, us and I mean I, I mean I'd love to sort of work with other directors within the company as well, which we have a little bit, but um, I, I think that's probably. And were those films sure. budgeted, or did you find a different way to to budget those films? How did you how did you budget those films? Um, when it when it came to the shorts, um, I used to fund a lot of films myself and um and that was that was good and I, I made a lot of shorts that way and um you know with small budgets and you know get some actors and some people who want to you know get some get some footage and you know but yeah you end up sort of cutting the legs off your story because you're trying to um you know I, I would watch stuff back and it, it would be like Am I happy with it? Did you know? Did I do everything I could to make it as good as possible? No, it, it's like the guerrilla filmmaking route, which I, I still sort of consider myself to be a guerrilla filmmaker. But back then, I was super guerrilla, um, and I reached a point, and I was like, I'm not going to do that again. And I, I decided I had um, a good opportunity to produce like a well-budgeted film that a friend was um, directing, and and I was working with her husband, who's quite an established filmmaker. It was a real eye opener for me. We had like named talent in it, and it was a very it was crowdfunded, and they hit the money within like less than a day because of uh, who her husband was, and uh, it. it and and it just gave an opportunity to sort of do things a different way. And you know, again, the account and me won't it keeps on coming back up, and it's like we do talk on the, ambi- the ambiguous, but at the same time, well funded, and it was crowd funded, and it hit the targets in a day, which is nearly unheard of. So, what was the target? What sort of funding level are we talking here? Is it um, in the millions? Is it oh, smaller? No, no, it was a short film. It was a short film. So I think the initial budget was, um, I think it was about eight grand they were asking for, but it made something like, because this was a few years ago now, so I'm struggling to remember. I I would imagine it was between 15 and 20. Um, Now, there's an interesting thing in my language. See, if we come from no budget, to five and ten, we, we had this come up in another one of our like shows there quite recently. If you're coming from nothing, something is is amazing. It's ten grand, God forbid. We've right, we've got ten, we've eked ten grand together. We can do ten minutes or fifteen minutes or something. It's brilliant. But then when you move to, from the from, the, I, I was using the the, the the example of the fives. We've got five grand. We can do five minutes or something. We've got fifty grand. We can make an awful lot of something else. But how you get fifty grand when you've run out of family and friends is a, is getting harder. Now, if we've five hundred grand, we've forty cast and crew running around in a micro budget level of meaningfulness because the amount of people we need at the day rate to deliver to something is everybody has to get paid. There's no escape in five hundred grand. So now we're and that's the language we were trying to come from. In the we were talking to Jonathan Brown like a very well-established producer, director, actor in America, his language was working from 500 million backwards. He was yeah. nearly going, I sure, geez, now, you want 500 grand? Well, here's a cup of tea and there's a couple of quid. You know, it, he says, it doesn't even enter into their conversations. He calls that nearly micro, mi- microscopic budget. You know, that ending under 5 million in, in, in the LA language is, you know, that's a hobby. You know, you know well, good luck with that. But, you know, it's not, we're in the movies here now we're working backwards and going if we're coming and we want to be the writer producer director we're coming from nothing to be the risk on someone else's budget so and that's where i was i was nearly hoping you were going to say well budgeted and i heard eight grand i was going hash jeez i'll give you that now that wouldn't be well budgeted in any book in my book the accountant has come back into the role here no it's it's what it's not the accountant it's the it's the in the room the business of film and instead of the film business, we're in the business of film everyone here because 
we have to, we're starting to talk the language of budget and what can we do and whether the budget drives the film or the film drives the budget but either which way you look at it the money has to be in the room and as soon as you have the money in the room the money leaves and then the art and creativity can can try to be packaged with the skill sets that are there but we're asked the question i want to ask james is you know i didn't i don't know how what the level of pitch that soriety is you know it's a feature film it's got some names in it, a good team, a breakout feature, but at what level of budget raise was that, I suppose, as a starting point, so we can get a, a frame, you know, how difficult it was or, or, or what it has to do in the marketplace to get its money back or, or who it attracted beyond its ability of a figure, if that makes sense. Um, the budget was uh, just under 100K, so it's, it's you know, it's a small budget um budgeted production um but it was really written to be that way um so i i basically had as i'm writing the script i had the budget in my head already of of kind of where i wanted it to sit i wrote it for favors i could call in locations i had access to i had actors in mind that that i could reach out to in fact i i already had spoken to um, Sophie Kennedy Clark, who who is one of the leads in the film. Uh, she won a BAFTA for playing um, young Judy Dench in uh, Philomena, but she she's got been in some incredible films with with some of the the world's best filmmakers. And I'd met her through working on another project, which got quite close to happening, but didn't happen. And we used to meet and sort of bang our heads against the wall about it. And then I think, I can't remember who who suggested it first, but she was like, let's just make our own film. And I was like, okay, well, give me a moment to think about that and uh, I'll come back to you. And yeah, I, I, we, we got back in touch. I was like, here's the script. Um, and it's based on a short film that I had previously made. So, uh, you know, the visual language and the way the film felt and the way it sort of played had already been established kind of five years previous. Um, she came on board not only as lead, but also as one of the producers. Um, yeah, and we started making the film together and she'd worked with Kate Dickey, who's another one of the, the wonderful actors in the film, probably um, best known for Game of Thrones. Um, and I'd worked with Kate on the short film version of the feature, which was called Soror. I just added the uh, little bit on the end to make it sorority, going for the alien, aliens wide, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, it's a bit bigger. Um, and um, yeah, it was, it was, it was easy to sort of get those guys on board and sort of sign up to this experience. Um during yeah, your film so. production process, I mean, one of the things I, I, I'm quite interesting in is um, uh, there was a number of short films that I worked on a few years ago, and at least two of the films were properly processed in working out schedules and things, and they worked really well. But there's one film didn't, and it ended up almost a horror story because uh, people that had sort of lent locations were annoyed that they couldn't get back in when they were expecting to because they, they hadn't planned how to do the shoot. How much detail do you go into in a daily shoot? Or, or is that possible on your kind of filmmaking? Uh, it's, it's completely possible. Uh, forensic detail. Um, I'm, I'm hugely passionate about pre-production. Um, I think it's probably, you know, every stage of production is important, but... If you have bad pre-production, then the shoot's going to be challenging. Post's going to be an issue. It filters the whole way down. You get that right, and at least you start on the best possible footing because there will always be wild cards during a shoot. Yeah. With good pre-production, you can foresee a lot of that and have things in place. So I, to tell you the truth, the way that we produce the feature is no different than we produced uh, the way we produce short films. Um and and actually, the amount of work to a degree is quite similar. It's just different amounts of money, and you book in people for for longer periods of time. I think the short film version of Soror, uh, of Sorority called Soror, actually had more locations than the feature. Um, 
yeah, so you know, you I had to source less for for the feature film version. Um, yeah, you're just talking about raising more finance and obviously things on the end to do with sales and distribution is a whole kind of new world for me. Although we have always had um, distribution for our shorts, like Shorts International have two of my my short films, you know, and they put out a lot of the Oscar winning shorts. Um, and uh, we actually pre-sold my, my horror short, The Prey, um, to... Um, like a, a LA-based company um, that, that's a subsidiary of uh, Blumhouse. So um, yeah, that was that was kind of fun, like pre-selling a short, which um, that's unheard of, you know, nearly now. Yeah. I mean, you're actually very, I'm very, very impressed. Now I don't know when that was, and it was repeated many a time after. But for anyone else out there that we're dealing with, they're nearly seeing the shorts as. You know, we're hoping to win an award, but we don't have any marketing even to get to the festival because we only raised two grand in the first place to eke you know, the short to begin with. Or it might be 20 grand if it's a funded short in the Irish market. And, and it has a chance of getting something, but it was never really looking as if there was a pre-sale language, a marketing language, it, or making its money back. It was just, we got to make it. You literally said, we pre-sold a short. You're going, you had your money back. Actually, with the 100 grand feature, you, even though you said you, you, the budget was 100, I was hearing in your language, it was a little bit more than that. I don't know how much of the pre-post work no, you it was less charging. than 100. It no, was, no, it was probably close to 90. Yeah. No, that's a physical cash, baby. I'm wondering, did you charge every penny of your pre-post effort of scheduling that you put in of your baby into that budget? Oh, of course oh, not. Well, there, no. no, then you're going, you have to, as an accountant, if it was a turn now you go. That's yeah, it. Yeah, there yeah. You go. So realistically, if a third party somebody had to hire in the pre-post expertise, a guarantee that went smoothly, and it wasn't them because they were the they were the writer, but not the scheduler. Then what would how incremental would the budget be moving? You had some great favors. You you were able to over ten years you know, bring in, but now you have, you have a BAFTA winning so-and-so and a Game of Thrones other. Had they charged it a day rate and not been the producer, would that have doubled the budget to have the same actresses there for the third party doesn't have the relationship? So, I mean, this is what other people have to do in the absence of the relationship. You, you, had, done, you had the triptych. You had a pre-sale Short, you can leverage into the future on a feature. You had relationships of BAFTA to award-winning something that would do a favor and want to be involved and give back. And you managed to raise a hundred grand. You know, and actually, now we know the price was more, but because you know the value is beyond the hundred. I think you know if I had to do it, what would it cost me to do it? Do you think? Well, in in that process, I mean, one of the things that I know that I did with my feature, again, we didn't raise the money, but we managed to get £300,000 worth. And, and effectively, I'd kind of followed a procedure similar to what Garvin's talking about, because I broke the film down into its component parts and worked out every single bit, and then worked out what people were able to give us to, to, to bring that budget down. But in one sense, there was still an agreement with that party or third party that if the film did make some money we would have to take a percentage to them. Would you have to work in those kind of or uh, uh, deals with those people that if the film did make money, they, they didn't come back to you and suddenly say, we remember when you we helped you out with that movie, you've made a lot of money. Can we now ask for some money back in return? Um, as far as like services and people like like we, we paid, you know, we worked out a deal and, and the deal was the deal. Um, yeah. And... Yeah, like I, I had, because we'd always, you know, use really good post and uh, certainly post services, you know, good graders, uh, good, uh, an amazing sound design designer who has his own studio. Um, a lot of those guys actually wanted to be involved with the feature and actually help us out. And it wasn't a case of, yeah, here's some money, but if it does well, I'll, I'll want more money. And, and you know, it was it was quite a simple sort of deal, and yeah. you know they gave yeah. us what what available time they had, and we worked to that schedule. Um, and sometimes that means the post might take one or two months, a little bit longer than than it would do normally. But you know, for the right people, it's 
it's worth delaying things and sort of waiting for yeah. them to come on Absolutely. board and to work Absolutely. to their schedules. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I think what's uh, important is it you know that, that that's really good because basically there are parameters being set so that everybody knows and understands the processes that you're going through and what the consequences of those processes are. So I think that that's really good. I know a lot of the filmmakers that we're talking to haven't even thought of that and they're doing they think they're making deals but they haven't actually got it in writing so there's no parameters set and then they get hit with something years later because they hadn't thought. But I think what I mean I think it's really important what you're saying here that you you have established the boundaries what what can be given and and how much it is for so you've set a kind of price even though you know you've worked at it you've worked out a deal and i think that's that's really really good that we're, we're hearing that because i think that's the kind of things that filmmakers that we're hopefully going to be working with need to understand <laughs> because you know without that you can't move your film forward into distribution uh, All of this was talked about as well before we really went into production, before pre-production, really. I, I shared the script with sort of the core team. The same, you know, I, I used uh, the same cinematographer, for instance, for years. Um, I, I worked with other people, but but he made the short with me. We've, we've done a lot of other stuff and we sort of know each other really well. But when I've written a script, I'll send it to him and say, what, what do you think? Um, and he'll start having ideas and then, you know, he's attached to it and he knows maybe it's not going to be as big a money earner as shooting a, you know, a, a commercial or something for a big brand, but he will be, uh, like artistically rewarded through it. And, and also like, he's got a lot of work from the short film version. Like he, he uh, Lorenzo, um, cinematographer I worked with years, he, he refers to it as the gift that keeps giving, um, which is wonderful to hear. So sort of making the feature with him is sort of a no brainer. We've, you know, and all, most of the people who worked on the film were people I'd collaborated with before. And it's once again, going back to the shorts, it's it's you get to find your film family and people you enjoy working with who do good work um, that they they're on the same wavelength as you. No, not not saying that you don't occasionally have differences of opinion on on how to approach certain things, but that's good. Like you need people around you that you trust, but you also but also aren't afraid to, you know, question. You don't want yes work. men and yes women. Yeah. It's a case of yeah. the difference. Yeah. It, that's the difference. It's to find that halfway house that that actually brings the extra value. Otherwise, we're all singing off the same hymn sheet. We're all singing the same hymn, but there's no extra, there's no outside. You're not going to break the mold. So, I mean, I love what the language are using there because it's actually a, a language that resonates with us. We, you know, if we're saying we're talking the business of film, I, I actually would ne nearly rename that now to be the family business of film because we're looking for yeah. that go-to team that what that basically gets it, that you get each other, you're allowed your voice, you find a compromise, but the compromise is around bringing extra value to the centre. And therefore, that that's brilliant. And you don't need to go any further to find someone else because that's what the journey of your relationships were, were about in the first place. It's finding that go-to team that gets it, the ones that keep on getting it. And again, you've resonated with the fact that your story, Sorority, or the breakout feature, it's something that's going to keep on giving. It's a testimonial platform. It's, it shows the family and the fun we had, the fact we enjoyed it. It's evidenced in the film, in, in how, how it gets delivered, because somewhere in there, the art will translate. And you've, you've said that. And I think we actually have been speaking about that on an awful lot of our shows, and that's what we want. We don't want to go off and make the big film, because because that's 500 people and lots of moving parts if we can get the level of what you're talking about it's the family business of film this film film family and i think that's where we're going and that's what i see in what you're talking about at the moment which is great yeah a lot of people that we've been talking to uh, and i've probably fallen foul of this myself is that um, because the resources around you are limited you end up trying to do everything yourself and i think what's really really good coming from what you're saying james is the fact that you know, you had a cinematographer, you had an editor, you had all these other components that you worked with, and it was a collaboration. And I think that's that's really important because that motivates you to keep on working and keep on going. Whereas I know that in the past on a couple of the projects I've had, because all the responsibility was me, you end up running out of steam and you haven't got somebody else to actually 
you know, give you that boost. And that's one of the reasons why I'm working with Garvin is because, you know, when we do individually get that low, you've got somebody else to counter that and boost you back up again. Is that something you found within the productions that you were working on? Oh, a hundred percent. It's, it's, it's more enjoyable sort of going through the experience with others as well. And you get in a room and you're throwing ideas around and I'm, I'm, you know, I, I love collaboration. Um, I, I think it's, it's a collaborative art form. Um, so it's so important. Um, and, and there were certain things on the feature, for instance, you know, I do edit and I do, you know, I, I get paid to edit. Um, but I decided not to, to edit on on the feature because I had a worrying feeling that, you know, I could start, you know, obsessing and taking longer. And I needed someone to, to, to do a cut without my involvement, take the footage and do their interpretation of what the film was. And then I would join them and we'd work on it together. And that was a much... I think better and healthier um, way of of proceeding because you know that person has no idea how long it took to got to get a shot, um, no idea of all the planning that went into certain moments or the rehearsals we did to an inch of their life just to get this one moment on camera. They will see it almost from an audience point of view, yeah, and approach it that way, um, and that was really beneficial um we've got a, a wonderful editor who I, I'd met through um I was on BAFTA crew uh scheme and I, I met her at drinks thing she just kind of just appeared out of the darkness and started talking to me and saying if I ever needed an editor and um we met for a coffee a few weeks later and um she she's she's fantastic Monica Redwanska I think she's you know, it'd be embarrassing if she watches this, but I think she's going to be a, a massive... Well, we um, need one more customer, James. You're going to have to get her to yeah. watch this. Otherwise, we'll, uh, we'll it, have yeah. no audience. But she's great. And, you know, she's worked on Star Wars and, and large, you know, in the editorial department of large productions to sort of have a, a smaller film where she can put her stamp on it yes um and and make it her own a lot of people were coming to the film from in in that way as well you know they'd sort of been in in a a bigger bigger productions where actually the they're invisible the weird the weird thing is you're you're we've we had a little preamble before this show and said what we're about and what actually was very nice of what you said because i've actually said that to george as well it's like we are experts. I can wash windows, but I'm not meant to be washing windows. I can be the accountant, but I'm no longer the accountant. I want to be in the room. I want to be, I know what right looks like. You said, you, you, because you're an editor, you know the functionality of it. Now, we can do it, but you've stepped out of that role now. But you know what your replacement needs to functionally look like as a skill set. And you also recognize what the art was beyond the functional. So, I mean, but, but you also... Like ed- editing goes beyond editing. It's a major, major part of direction. Yeah. Um, so um, something else that saves time, it saves money, yeah. is shooting to edit. Yeah. So a whole sequence yes. will be shot, so it will be edited in a particular way. Yeah. And once again, that's a short film. Uh, I did a short film called Driftwood, which um, is very precise. You know, uh, it it's it's almost like three micro shorts combined into one and the stories run visually into each other and you have to have an idea of the timing and the sense of edit as you're shooting it or you're going to run into trouble no james yeah what i am sitting in the room with is two editors you know which which is a rare actually and we've actually had another editor in the room before as well and the great thing is in in i think this is very very important in indie production the people are having the difficulty in the, they're trying to go, give me 200,000 and I'll spend it. Give me a, oh, if I can have more and I'll spend it. And we're going, no, they're not coming from the other, actually the other side. Even Carl King said it, like the film Joyride, the particular makers of it, they were editors to begin with that then decided we can move, we can affect what will end up here in front of us because we know what the ask, we can write for the ask to be what we expect 
to edit. So we're coming from the functional back words and as you said we're writing the film with the budget in mind we're writing you're nearly saying we're writing with the edit in mind and but now you, we're saying yeah, this is the budget though, we need yeah. to get the minimum mask of value for edit for function for value you know well let me bring sense. something in there because um i mean what garvin's talking about is the way that i've worked all my life uh now i it turns out the two of us, James, went to Bournemouth. Now, I went to Bournemouth Film School. You went to, was it Wallace Town College, the university? Oh, the Arts there? Institute, yeah. Oh, the Art it, Institute there, it's yeah. Oh, I don't know. Ah, now, hang on. So you went to the Arts Institute. Is that the one? Right, now, oh, what's interesting, I think it used to be the college that used to be in Lansdowne that went to Wallace Down after the university was set up. So that's the art school. So you actually went to the same place I went, to, even though it changed locations. But one of the things that I had coming from that course was that although we directed our own short films, we were basically told what jobs we should be looking for in the industry. And for me, I was directed towards becoming an editor. I was told basically very early on, look, you're an editor because the way that you look at things and the way you, you know, sort of scan things out. And I know that from a directing perspective, that's what I've been doing all my life. Everything I'm doing is how can I cut that together? Even in the middle of this show, there was, a, there was a question that Garvin started to ask and I edited it in two and went, right, I'm going to inject that and I'm going to move this around to here and that will make that clearer what we're trying to get to. So I've just edited the piece in my head as I'm going along. And I think that's something that is that is missing from a lot of people because early on in my career, I, I'm i a non-linear editor. So I see the whole film and I, I can work on this section here and not worry about the rest because I've got an overview but I've worked with a lot of directors that had to go in a very linear way. And I'm not sure if it's because they were involved in video editing before, but they couldn't cope with how do you see the whole film? And they were the director producers. And that was very frustrating from my perspective, because I know in, in some of the projects I've worked on, because they didn't understand where we were going, I had no concept of whether we were close to the end of the film or in the middle of the film and I could see budgetary-wise that I was running out of time to do the edit. And and that is a major, major problem that we have, because we're going back to the accountancy idea, that if the director and producer don't understand the editing process, they don't know how much time it's going to take to get something done. And my experience has been that most people get it wrong by, uh, they, they underestimate by about a third, uh, and they think it's going to take a certain amount of time, and it's usually three times longer. Uh, is I mean, is is that the kind of experience that you've had from from working with clients and things? Because it is a budgetary thing that is always causing problems. Um, yeah, I think sort of working certainly like corporate and things like that, where I really sort of cut my teeth when I first went uh, full time um, as as a, a creative. Um, yeah, like you you have all kinds of experiences in the edit, and some of them are very. Uh, pleasant and, and simple and aligned. And sometimes you have clients who don't necessarily understand the process at all. Yeah. Um, which is why they've asked you to do it and they're not doing it themselves. Good for me. But, um, you know, it, it can complicate things and they can sometimes have new ideas in, in the edit as well, which, you know, are really part of the shoot you can't do that in the edit. You need to, yeah. I, I remember someone asking if I could um, pan the camera once in, in an edit. And um, could we just move it more onto him? And I was like, well, that's, yes, that's impossible. Yeah. That's physically yeah. Impossible. It's impossible. It's not, it's not impossible. It's not like James. Blade we can go back in time. camera thing, you know, <laughs> it, it, that moves around. It's, uh, you know, and you sort of explain it to the person and then the penny drops. Uh, yeah that kind of technology is quite a way off. So it's it's interesting, occasionally painful, but mostly fine. Yeah. Actually, I'm going yeah. to swing back around to Soriety, only in the context of, I know, you know, everyone else and all the other shows you're on, you'll be talking about what the film's about and, and this, that and the other, and, and like it's just drama and that love affair or, or someone gets murdered. We don't care. We don't, we're, we're in the business of film. We're, at the moment, we don't, you've done the impossible. You've got, you've raised finance. You've done a second impossible. You've attracted beyond the budget and you've got some names in there. I, I don't know whether you mentioned or not that. Did you get a pre-sale on this one because of the pre-sale in the past or are you 
it, it, because these people are in there now and it's done and dusted, it's, you're on that journey. Um, yeah, there was no pre-sale on this at all. We we literally uh, got uh, independent finance from a, a businessman uh, who paid for the entire film. And um, actually, uh, having sort of come from a feature before uh, that, you know, was it was difficult raising the finance. Um, admittedly, it was a much larger budgeted film. But with this one, uh, the first person we met said, yeah, I'm interested. I'll pay for the whole thing. And I was kind of like, oh, well, okay, why are okay. you having coffee? Go back to the sentence there. The first person you met <laughs> so just put his hand in his pocket, took out 100 grand and go, yeah, yeah, that's fine. That's grand. Was that Conor McGregor? Yeah. We had an MMA fight or something there. No, no, not at all. <laughs> I, it wasn't someone who was even involved in film. Uh, right, brilliant. James. It wasn't there, even a previous yeah. uh, uh contact of mine it was brought in through one of the other producers um and uh yeah uh, and, you've and done it, another triptych you've done an unheard of you've attracted a non-film investor to film on a first-time basis with a six-figure or i don't know many i think you yeah, six there's probably six, six figures yeah, in a yeah. hundred six-figure one check not 200 little guys giving a tenner each lark no you've got the first ask and if you don't, if, if, if this actually does okay, if you've opened the door to the unheard of impossible in indie production that's currently in the Irish and UK market, an unknown investor willing to cut a six-figure check based on what what brought them over? It was, were they bought into the names where, where there was, it was, there was no preconditions by the sounds of this. It was just... We, we went for a, a, a lot of dinners um, which, to be fair, he paid for. Um, right, was you know, this McDonald's now, or are we hanging out in the Ritz? <laughs> no, no, it was, it, it was, it was good. It was, uh, you know, we had we had a number of very nice uh, Indian meals, um, and uh, yeah, we we met a number of times. We talked about the film. Like he had a lot to, you know, he was very uh, committed to financing the project, but. You know, I think we wanted bizarrely like we wanted to make sure he understood what that meant and talking through the way yeah. <laughs> that we wanted to make the film. Yeah. Like it's not like you make the film and then bang, we just hand it over to someone and it starts bringing in money. It's not quite as simple as that. That you know, we wanted to do the festival route, um, which is effectively you know delaying a return um and he gave us you know and, and i also didn't want anyone who was gonna sort of have opinions on the story uh, oh, yeah. you, uh, james you're not paint you're painting an impossible picture for everybody else here they got to find your investor <laughs> this person that goes that be damned the risk uh, you've got carte blanche. Uh, don't worry about how many years it takes to get the money back. I'm not really pushed. You're going, no, or is, no I'm going to step back in as the investor type question and go, what would a normal investor, that hundred now, what, does it, what is it that's on offer? What would, when would he expect the money back? What, okay, we know the hundreds at risk. You know, he has to get a hundred back just to break even. At a negative, at inflation and all the rest of it, it's over five years. He spent 25% just to keep up on inflation over five years. So what, what, how many customer views in the old YouTube googly space do you think you're going to need to give this investor a little bit of no, a return? Over no five idea. Years? I mean, there are so many different yeah. ways that the film could go. Uh, there are so many, uh, you know, avenues that are open to us to do that. So we're sort of, we're, and that's the point where we're at now. We're, we're but now is there people. a budget? There is a the big mad question. The film was made for 90 grand. What's the marketing budget? Um, marketing is in uh, like a, a festival sense. No, I mean, for you to get the sales and all these relationships and go to as many festivals as you want. Wait, you're, you're basically looking for a distributor. Is that what it is through the festival? Yeah, like a sales oh, right. agent. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So nothing. You know, it's no, just, a, no, you know, just, it's just emailing people. No, did, and Yeah, but and, based, and based on that same premise of, of the film festival routes, one of the things that we've been hearing from people that have got stuff into distribution is that the distributor ends up getting a big whack of the, the money that come the returns. And quite often the producers end up with next to nothing to give their investors a return. Is is your investor aware of that as well? Or, or are um, they... I mean, 
it's difficult to sort of talk, you know, and I, I don't want to get into specifics about No, 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 no. Oh, no, no, specifics. Think, no. No, but, no, no, um, no. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've, you know, film is, I think I did say to him, you know, I, I could sit here and say that, you know, you're guaranteed your money back, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, that's not, it's not honest. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a, it's a risky business. You know, you can be incredibly successful um, and you can not be incredibly successful. You can, you can lose money. So, you know, don't put it, you know, he, luckily I, I don't think we are in the, the position where, you know, finance wasn't going in that, you know, was, uh, it's not, you know, very, you know, he, he knew the risk as, as right. a business. Yeah. Right. No, because we, in a few of the interviews we're having lately, you know, we've got some people at the lower level and they're going the OTT platform route. And even with the, their couple of films on the OTT platform, they're unclear themselves as to what they'll actually get. So, you know, we are, I as an accountant couldn't help myself saying, okay, if you put it onto YouTube in the normal sense, it's seven cents for a thousand views, 700 grand, it's going to take you 70 million customers, and that's number three on Netflix. Actually, when we looked at the Netflix side of things, and because they've removed the upside, they more than likely would just buy the production out with a 30%. So 100 grand, they'll give you 130% of all your costs. Now, what the other conversation said was, if you didn't cost in the full cost of production, had you put in your time at the right time, they would have gave you 200 grand, because it was a recognized invoice of cost reduction, not the work given for nothing. So it's not in your interest not to actually pay yourself or invoice it in if Netflix or Amazon are one of the outs. So now it turns out we looked at the Netflix model and we thought they would be giving us more per view. And it turns out you probably get less than Google. You might be getting four to five cents a view in the sense of, you know, for your hundred grand using the maths, you need two million views under either or heading of customers for you to get the money back. You know, and it's, it's not it's difficult that makes as well sense. though, isn't it? Because Netflix very rarely sort of give out viewing figures. So it's, it's Oh, what that's what's yeah. happened is they've now st- they've took control of the market. They no longer give you access to their 100 million customers. What for indie production, what they seem to be implying is we'll buy if we like it, actually we need to really like you, we'll buy you out and you have no access to our market. We'll just give you a production plus mm. 30%. Something like that. Now, there's no, depending on how strong you are. Now, what also the article said, I think it was Stephen Fellow's article, he says, they've got three headings. More than likely, you have to already have your customers already packaged into it. So what they're finding is people are packaging YouTube stars or influencers or something that might have 10 or 20 million followers that Netflix are hoping to convert 1% of that 20 million will give them a 10, 10 euro revenue per month of that conversion rate. That's what you're meant to be pitching to them if you're an unknown indie something. Ooh. So they're not going mm. for, I made it, there's a queue of 200 people in there with, with strength of customer base before you and they don't take everything. And that's where the market is being disempowered in indie production. You, you, you find it's going to be difficult to raise the money, but even when you do, and even if you, when you've spent it, you've no access to any of the platforms and the aggregators themselves are having difficulty raising anything or, or making money. Actually, it's really it's a really good point to sort of end on. But one of the things I think we're actually getting fairly close to the end of the show, so we do have to come to an end at some. Well, you've point. achieved everything, which is unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's that's the key. That's that's what's the really important part of of the show is the fact that you have managed to 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 find an investor. You've been honest about the way that the the film is is more than likely not going to generate the the revenue, and the and the investor has been happy to. To, to put the money there. You've also not taken on the burden of doing everything, which I think is fantastic, because that's one of the indie filmmakers' uh, downfalls. They tend to take everything on. And you've found this family of people to help you, as in professionals within the film industry that you've worked with, which also means that because the experiences they're having on the shoots that you're doing, they will more than likely come on the next shoot because they know they're going to have the same enjoyment. And as you've also discussed, that on the bigger films, quite often the people feel as though they're insignificant and not part of a family, which also demonstrates that quite often those that do generate an income from the bigger uh, bigger films love coming down to work on the smaller budget films because they feel as though they can have a bit of an impact 
on the way that film is made and be more creative. And that that's a brilliant thing to hear from our perspective. So I think that's my kind of wrap up. But just to just to wrap up, what would you like to say to the audience, James, to to either motivate people forward or or consider things that that might put their films at risk not to do just to get, you know, be more positive about the process? Um, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of people who sort of, uh, uh, you know, kind of give advice and sort of always say, just go out there and, and, and just, just, you know, do it push as hard as possible. And, and I think that is, is good advice, um, to a degree, but there's definitely wrong ways to sort of approach um doing that but i i know from my own personal experience um you have to have uh total belief in your idea in what you're selling um and you you can have creative um you know uh, uh belief in it in a project and you can have commercial belief and and really you you need to have both and uh I, th I think that's that's really important and it may be if you're not feeling that um then maybe it's not the right project i don't know it's something i always sort of think is uh i i like a degree of uh of trepidation before i go into something if i'm not feeling it then i i know it's not right for me that i i'm not pushing myself to sort of uh, achieve something and and i felt it on this um it was hugely exciting and it was an amazing experience like um i i you know and i'd sort of got prepared myself for you know a difficult journey because you sort of hear horror stories about people making micro budget films and uh the stuff they had to deal with and you know um and they find themselves halfway through the shoot trying to remortgage their house or something to, to try and uh keep the film going and actually this experience was was spot on like it was good people we we you know I, I hate to sort of speak on their behalf but I feel pretty confident in saying that that you know pretty much everyone had a, a really fantastic time on the film uh we didn't take anyone's work for granted um people you know were 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 paid and fed well which is also probably one of the biggest yes. um we had really good catering somehow on a micro budget film and uh yeah it was it was a really good um rewarding experience um and it's not and it's not over you know yeah. making shooting the film is one financing you know you you that's great. You get your film finance, but then you, you still have to make the thing and you have to edit it and then you have to sell it. And then you have to get an audience to actually watch it. It's just one part of the journey. I'm still on that journey. You know, we we've done our festival run. We're sort of winding down on that now. Um, and it's the next stage is to get those deals and start recouping um, the budget. So, you know, I'm, I'm still on that journey, but I'm enjoying it so far. Brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. Garvin, any last words you'd like to just say just before we say goodbye? I'm going to just come back in again and go, I wasn't being negative then. I was trying to say, James, you achieved the impossible. And it's brilliant because you raised the finance, you attracted the investor, he knew the risk, you're going and you were then able to do those other parts you said. Everyone knew what you were up to. You had a dream team. You've got the family dream team that were bought in, that over-delivered because you had that family common goal set. They got their pay. They they rate. They got well fed. You had a great time. It's evidence in the movie. There is extra value in there. You attracted beyond the budget. We and therefore, by definition, you're one of the few high-value indie productions in the market and therefore by definition you'll get more than get your money back because you're not competing with anybody in that that area you're number one you've done it you've gone beyond the ask for some for us to try and raise a hundred grand without going through the language of what i was trying to say i couldn't come up with the figures that would prove anyone to give me the money <laughs> but i do believe the story if it was done and you had the money would deliver it back 
But that's the, that's a difficult part for an accountant and an investor to understand what's the risk. How do I get my money back? I don't not believe you can make the film, and I wouldn't be great. I just don't know what it is I'm investing in. Is it difficult is for to attract that unknown investor into the business of film? But I think you've done it, and because you've done it once, you will do it again, and that's brilliant. It's already sold in my books, so I didn't want to be negative on the end. You were, I, I didn't know you were negative. I didn't even think of that. <laughs> oh, no, George, George will tell me afterwards. Oh, you no, told no, him no, how no, he's no. not going to have two million customers and he's not going to make any money. <laughs> no, no, oh, no, yeah, no, I do no, remember no. you saying that now. Well, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, we probably won't get two million, but three million maybe, I don't There you go. That's what there you want. You've made 300% return is what that investor can now expect. I'll, I'll, I'll send them the email. Yeah. But that's not <laughs> guaranteed, folks, if you listen to this, especially if you, it's not guaranteed. Yeah. Anyway, listen, that's been a brilliant show. We've learned a lot from our experience of talking to James today, and I think that's fantastic. There's a lot of things that I know other filmmakers can learn from what we've been talking about today, especially not taking on board everything, defining your own roles, working with a family of professional filmmakers that you trust and can work with, getting your pre-production done properly well before you go out and shoot, and also I think make sure you've got the funding to cover the cost of the whole production before you go out and do the shoot so you know that you can complete it. And I think it's also exciting to hear what James has been doing about going on the uh, festival route and then he's he's motivated about as the producer to make sure that he does get an, uh, a return back on his investor so thanks James for coming on to the show today uh, thanks Garvin for your input as well and thanks everybody for watching this show which goes out on a Friday and we hope you look forward to our next episode so bye for now Cheers. thanks a lot Baker bye. Hope you enjoyed this video, please subscribe and click on the bell for notifications.